Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. I'm Mira Chandan, co-head of uh, JP Morgan's FX strategy effort. And I've got Jay Barry on the line with me today, uh, co-head of US rate strategy. So there's, there's a lot to talk about um, in macro markets. You know, we have U.S. resilience uh, that is continuing to be quite persistent. Uh, we've got uh, U.S. yields uh, sitting uh, near the top end of their recent range. We've got the dollar that's strengthened pretty substantially since August. And, um, you know, we're going into, I would say, uh, more action-packed weeks. Uh, this week, we have the CPI from the U.S. on Wednesday. And then, of course, the ECB on Thursday, which is going to be quite an important uh, meeting uh, in one in which we are looking for um, a decent uh, change in uh, uh, in uh, tone towards the more dovish side. But, uh, you know, let's let's talk about U.S. rates first, uh, because uh, we've got Jay Barry on the line. And Jay, you've raised uh, your interest rate forecast last week. Uh, you've been writing about three pillars uh, underlying this change. I think the first two of those pillars, uh, you've been pretty much ahead and early on the curve on. That relates to the demand and supply uh, imbalances uh, in the treasury market as we're going into next year and uh, has all been pointing towards higher rates. But the third uh, is also one that you're putting more emphasis now on is, uh, is the U.S. resilience story, which seems, uh, you know, which seems to certainly be a key factor in driving U.S. yields. So let's talk about, um, you know, uh, these three pillars first and how much weight you're assigning to each and also, of course, the new forecast and targets that you have in mind. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mira. So, you know, you mentioned it. We made some pretty aggressive forecast changes um, over the weekend and the weekly. I think on the first part, you know, we've been, I think, attentive to the resilience of the U.S. economy for the last couple of months. But even with where we are right now, it seems like with all the data that we've gotten over the past couple of weeks, the pathway toward a soft landing continues to widen. And while we've only made sort of minor growth forecast changes in the last couple of weeks, I think what this does over the near term is it really meant that um, not only are we forecasting stronger growth over the near term, but look at how the market is pricing the Fed over the next year or so. You know, we had sort of thought about markets pricing in a wider sort of set of possible outcomes over the next year, from soft landing to something harder. But as the data flow has continued to come in and raise the probability of a soft landing, we've continued to sort of bring down the weight on that sort of recessionary side, which is sort of penciled into the the forwards, which is a, the mean of a number of possible outcomes. And I think because of that, alongside the revisions to the growth forecast, if we're thinking about the OIS curve out to 2024 being less inverted than it is right now, that is something that supports higher yields against the backdrop of a more resilient growth outlook that we've talked about. And, and then the second piece of the puzzle and the third that sort of you mentioned, which I think we've been talking about for some time, but I think more actively incorporating into the forecast right now, is an acknowledgement that the demand structure of the treasury market has shifted and is shifting pretty considerably. So we've talked about how the, the three main constituents for demand in the treasury market over the last 20 to 25 years have been the Fed, U.S. banks, and foreign, foreign investors, and how each of those three, their influence has been waning for the last couple of years, and we'd expect it to wane further over the coming year, in large part because we're in the process of seeing the Treasury Department have a significant increase in its coupon auction sizes. So the pathway for the Fed to do QT well into next year seems pretty likely, um, particularly the, the commentary that you and I have talked about from Chair Powell at his last meeting in July. At the last meeting in July. Separate from that, that bank demand um, is likely to remain muted because deposits aren't growing. And finally, that, that foreign demand, particularly foreign official demand, is likely to remain weak. And 
those three constituents at their peak about a decade ago represented 75% of the ownership of the treasury market. At a secondary peak um, about a year and a half to two years ago, that was something like 65%. But um, as of the middle of last year or middle of this year, excuse me, it's down to 55 And that all matters to me because those investors are all less um, price sensitive in nature. Um, and I think we're kind of at a little bit of a turning point here because the Treasury Department announced some pretty large-scale auction increases last month, which we anticipated. And to be fair, we've been, been anticipating this to be a series of them. But as we mentioned before, duration supply, which looks like it's running about $2.3 trillion 10-year equivalents this year, is likely to be running closer to $3 trillion 10-year equivalents next year. So when we put the pieces of the puzzle together, the more resilient economy, a, a less inverted OIS curve, the, the, the weakening of the three pillars of price insensitive demand um, against the backdrop of rising duration supply. And we think, you know, 10 year yields, which we had previously been forecasting, would be about 385 for the end of this year. We have now forecast that they'll be at 420 at the end of the year. So it's a pretty significant increase and would leave rates closer to where they are right now, even clearly against the backdrop of a Fed on hold. And it's for that reason why, you know, we think, um, you know, we're a bit more neutral on duration in the moment as well. Uh, thanks, Jay. So more, uh, more supply, more price sensitive demand, uh, resilience in the U.S. I guess, uh, you know, kind of takes us to the next topic. You've been writing about uh, term premium um, as reflected in uh, U.S. Treasuries. Um, you know, why don't you give a summary for our listeners as to what you think are uh, the various measures of term premium we should be looking at right now, and uh, and what are they telling us about uh, about term premium and about treasuries at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I think the main measures of term premium, which the market likes to um, monitor, are the ACM model that's published by the New York Fed and the Kim Wright model that's published at the Federal Reserve Board level. And those measures both indicate that term premium has been rising, but if anything, it's still low from an historic perspective and is directionally still negative as well. And so we've gotten a lot of questions about that, because if we are in this environment, as you said, where we're shifting to more price sensitive demand with supply increasing, does this not necessitate a higher term premium? So I guess the question is, is, is this correct and what could be keeping term premium low? And as a starting point, I think we need to consider whether there could be something about monetary policy expectations here, because clearly OAS forwards well in the future are incorporating a Fed funds rate, which will remain above three and a half percent for a considerable period of time. So the question here is whether the, the neutral interest rate R star might be higher than it was prior to the pandemic. And this is something that the economics team globally has been focused on and certainly indicate that there is a risk that R star could be higher. But when we look at, say, the Fed's own summary of economic projections, of which we'll get another one next week, while participants have been moving their longer run dot higher, the median hasn't budged. And when we look at sort of market participants on the primary dealer side, their longer run estimates have barely budged as well. So it's possible that a higher R star could be keeping term premium depressed because for a given level of nominal yields, higher expectations would necessitate lower term premium. But we can't see that in many of the expectations components that we look at. So when we dig a bit deeper, we find that these other measures of term premium, it seems to be that you know there are some sort of, I wouldn't say shortcomings, but idiosyncrasies to the way that they're constructed, which may sort of understate the moves that we've had. And I think in large part, because these measures don't necessarily sort of incorporate market-based changes to sort of Fed expectations over the longer run, that they ascribe much more of the move and any change in rates to expectations rather than term premium. And when we look at these measures, we think they're linked to sort of four different variables, one being rate volatility, 
Um, and we think about that rate volatility as a function of the Fed's uh, monetary policy reaction function, which has moved from a bit more proactive to reactive when it moved to flexible average inflation targeting. And while we're certainly at the tail end of a tightening cycle, and that should mean lower volatility over the near term, we think it's likely going to mean that vol stays relative to other Fed on hold periods higher than it's been in the past, so higher term premium than it's been over the past decade or so. Second, the volatility of inflation expectations as we try to get inflation back to 2%. If they remain more volatile, that's something that's likely to keep term premium more elevated as well. The third, and this is something we've been sort of talking about before, is global savings vis-a-vis FX reserves. Um, if FX reserves are not growing and the dollar share of those reserves are not growing, what was a tailwind to lower term premium over the last two decades or so is becoming a bit more of a headwind. And then finally, the balance sheet. We find that these term premium measures are very correlated with yield curve slope, particularly over the last 15 years since the Fed has been active with its balance sheet. And that makes sense because the prior work that we've done has shown that the, the Fed's share of the Treasury market matters for curve slope. So as the Fed's balance sheet continues to shrink, and as the Fed share of the Treasury market continues to climb, that means that term premium is likely to move higher as well. So fundamentally, these four factors all point towards higher term premium in these models. But when we look at other measures, um, and we can look at more empirical measures of term premium taken either from the survey of primary dealers or the survey of professional forecasters relative to long-term rates, it would indicate that term premiums risen. But overall, we think that the factors that we discussed before point towards higher term premium over time. And if we circle it back to the original part of the discussion, that is part of the reason why we did make these more aggressive forecast changes. So to selfishly plug it, it was in a piece that we wrote on, on Friday afternoon as well. Okay, thanks, Jay. And um, so final question from me. Uh, we've got the Fed uh, in a week and a half. Uh, what is uh, the baseline going into the Fed and how do you think treasuries are priced for that event? Sure. So I think we, and really I think it's rather consensus right now, Mira, look for the Fed to stay on hold at the meeting next week. Seems like markets are pricing in about a 10 to 15% probability that the Fed will hike. But those expectations have certainly been on a downward trend over the last couple of months or so because the chair identified, I think, five different data points that were meaningful to the outlook for the September meeting, an ECI report, two employment reports, and two inflation reports. And four out of those five that we've gotten so far are all indicative of a Fed on hold. So we expect the Fed to make no change, but to keep its forward guidance hawkish as it's been in the past, which would indicate that the risk of the next move being another hike if the Fed had to move again. And certainly that's what the market's pricing right now. You know, I think we need to kind of consider the Fed's forecast a bit more and if it's likely to be more hawkish with its forward guidance than it's been in the past, that would make the case that that last hike that's being um, that was in the SCP um, at the last meeting would probably still be here as well. Um, so if that's the case, the Treasury market seems like it is somewhat priced for this because markets are pricing in probably about a 50-50 probability of another hike between now and the November meeting, understanding that that risk is relatively high as well. And on the positioning side, you know, it does seem like investor positioning, which had been hanging very long for the last few months, has neutralized somewhat. And our, our Treasury client survey, which through the middle part of the summer was trending as long as it has at any point in the last decade, has gotten significantly more neutral right now. So it seems like the long base has been pared back, not 100%, but it's considerably down from where it was. And then if we kind of consider the sort of long-term prospects for yields, it's interesting that 10-year yields here sitting close to 430 are actually trading somewhat cheap relative to their um, the drivers in our fair value framework. 
which is really the first time that we've been trading cheap since the beginning of this year. So I think it seems like the market is a bit more price for the Fed to be on hold, but to convey this in a more hawkish sense as we look forward to next week. Um, I, I, I think I've certainly said a lot about U.S. rates here, and we've talked about term premium, but maybe we should pivot the conversation back to currencies right now. And you know, you talked about it at the beginning of this podcast that there's this resiliency story in the U.S., um, but we're not necessarily seeing the same thing globally, and it's led to divergences. Um, when we think about how that's affecting the currency market, you know, can you talk about you know the broad dollar um, and how this resiliency story is affecting um, affecting, excuse me, your your dollar view? Sure. Thanks, Jay. So first and foremost, um, you know what I should stress here that, and, and you know regular listeners will know this that we've been characterizing the U.S. Uh, resiliency um, in FX more as U.S. exceptionalism, um, and the reason to do that is to really bring home the point that the higher odds that the market is placing on a U.S. soft landing does not necessarily make this a soft landing in other parts of the world. Uh, in particular, the growth divergences are important. We're emphasizing those uh, between the U.S. versus um, Europe and China. Uh, weak growth has been prevalent in both Europe and China. And um, that to us has been making the case that this should this U.S. exceptionalism narrative really should be uh, reflected in dollar strength and should not be construed as sort of bearish for the dollar because, you know, soft landing um, is good for risk sentiment doesn't automatically make it uh, make it dollar bearish. So um, to us, uh, the dollar strength story has really been uh, the key um, narrative and the key expectation, particularly versus those currencies which are either growth challenged or yield challenged or both. Um, so examples of growth and yield challenged currencies would be uh, the euro, CNH, um, and of course, yield challenged yen is at the most extreme. Now, there has been some pushback recently from central banks on some of these currencies. In particular, we had the BOJ over the weekend, for example, um, that um, in, in an article has put an early exit from NERP on the table, which is interesting, uh, negative interest rates. Um, you know, we've also been getting pushback from the Chinese authorities on CNY weakening as well through various measures. Uh, what remains to be seen is to what extent this is um, this this really follows through, and if it uh, importantly is associated with any change in the fundamentals. I think for China, the thing you're starting to see now um, is that after a long string of weak data, you're starting to see activity data bottom out in certain uh, segments, uh, which is keeping dollar CNY. Uh, a bit more in a range, particularly when you combine this bottoming out in activity with uh, with what uh, what the authorities are doing to push back against CNY strength is proving to be somewhat effective. So even though our longer term view is certainly for more dollar CNH upside, I, I would say that um, you know if if we do see uh, uh, you know um, more stability on the activity side, and we've seen some element of that from the TSF and the credit creation data overnight uh, from China, then then certainly we could be in a bit of a more range-bound um, narrative for dollar CNY in the near term. Uh, for Japan, I think uh, the more important issue here is um, whether the exit from negative interest rates policy is actually credible and if to what extent is it really imminent. Um, you know, the, the thing is that the exit from negative interest rates has been part of our economist baseline uh, for a long time. Um, the timing is really key here. Uh, their baseline is that this exit from negative interest rates is going to happen in the second quarter of next year. 
So that leaves us, if that were to be the case, that would leave us with nine months of the Fed at about 5% and, um, and um, you know, BOJ at negative interest rates, which really doesn't help yen a lot. Um, you know, the earliest our economists expect is um, the, the exit from NERP is probably going to be March of next year, which still leaves us six months between uh, now and then. So really, in my mind, for, for this um, yen weakness to be contained and to actually mean reward in a meaningful manner, uh, what we would need is um, some sense from the BOJ that this exit and policies actually more imminent, something that they put on the table for this year. That's what makes it credible. Um, and that's something that we have to sort of uh, stay attuned for. It's really not part of our base case, which is why we think uh, that eventually yen weakness will also come back in. But broadly speaking, it's, it's dollar strength that we're looking at, particularly versus the yield challenged and the growth challenged currencies, uh, so long as this exceptionalism story uh, continues to hold. Got it. Thanks. And maybe we can get a little more near term. Um, we do have the ECB up later this week on Thursday. The title to your piece over the weekend was, is our euro dollar target of 105 too optimistic? Um, and you've written about the downside risks to your forecast there. Can you talk about what's driving that view and what targets you might have in mind when you're thinking about the euro? Sure. Um, so our euro dollar target for the second half of this year was uh, was 105. And I should say that if you look at the distribution of forecasts um, on the street, you know, that would be one of the, on the more bearish side of things. Um, I think uh, the medium is probably in the one, uh, 109 to 110 range. So we were already about five cents below uh, below consensus on this. And the point that I've been making is that um, that the risks to even this bearish outcome is is skewed to the downside. And I would sort of think about more uh, in terms of 102 or 103 type area. And the reason the reasons for this is the following. Um, you know, the first observation I would make is that the U.S. and uh, the Eurozone are very much in in very different cyclical positions and starting points, um, you know, as, as we've sort of entered this hiking cycle. And the one point our economists have been making, for example, is that potential output in Europe is still uh, below the pre-pandemic trend, whereas in US it's well above, um, has been growing well above potential. Um, and, and, you know, this divergence um, has been even more um, emphasized and intensified since since late May when data actually started missing expectations in Europe. And since then, we've seen an ongoing and continuous string of, um, of downside surprises. So the cyclical divergence to me is, is really the big um, difference uh, between the US and uh, Europe. And um, importantly, now what we're also starting to see uh, here is that the supply side is substantially improving um, in the US, whereas in Europe remains on the soft side. Uh, for example, our economists have been pointing out about productivity improving in the US uh, with the European productivity remaining soft. And you know, historically, when we see uh, the long run relationships of euro dollar with relative productivity, uh, what we find is that the currency hasn't really been able to deliver outsized positive returns in, um, in such periods of declining uh, productivity. So that's something that's keeping us um, sort of more pessimistic as well and kind of goes into the argument that while US could actually see a soft landing, Europe um, is not really sending those same signals. Um, and the final point I'll make is that the other higher frequency indicators are also pointing to further euro downside. We've got relative terms of trade 
um, that has weakened um, and softened in Europe with energy prices going up again. It peaked, in terms of trade peaked in June uh, for Europe. Uh, relative to the U.S., uh, we're seeing um, as well uh, as growth has come off, ECB turn more dovish relative to the Fed, and certainly that's kind of playing out in rate differentials as well. So all in all, I would say where things stand right now, fair value is around 107. Um, but if you look at it through the lens of uh, growth differentials and the downgrades we've seen so far, um, you know, the downside should be, uh, you know, between 102 to 105, 102 if this growth um, diver uh, divergence uh, deepens. So that's something that we'll be keeping an eye on. Now, coming to the ECB, I think the ECB, uh, you know, our economists are expecting a pause uh, with a bias to uh, high rates in the future um, if conditions warrant. And the reason for the pause is this uh, momentum running out of steam. And if you look at market pricing, you know, the markets are pricing in less than 50% chance of a hike um, this week. So around 10 basis points out of the 25 are priced in with the consensus pretty split. Um, I think um, it's, it's going to be very hard for the ECB uh, you know, to sort of come out of this meeting um, as leaving investors very bullish on euro, because if they do end up surprising hawkishly and they actually do deliver a hike, I think it's going to be accompanied um, by some dovish language around growth, which should indicate that they're kind of at the at the end of this hiking cycle in any case. So to me, uh, more downside uh, from here seems likely use of euro as a funder versus the dollar, versus uh, versus other high-yielding uh, emerging market currencies like Mexico, for example, or others in LATAM, uh, or the Canadian dollar seems like a better uh, outcome um, than than to be long euro, certainly pushing back against, uh, against the latter view and sticking with the better stance here. So that's all uh, for today. That's a lot to digest on both US rates and um, FX. Please take a look at our website if you need more um, information on our research. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on September 11, 2023.